0: Well, Happy Thanksgiving week, Rockbridge. Hope everybody is uh, full and doing well after uh, eating well with family and friends and and just having an opportunity to slow down a little bit and uh, thank God for all that he's given us, all that he's done for us. Hey, as we just came out of that video, once again, I wanna thank so many people who are bridge builders and leaders within our small groups. Those are like just where we practice and experience the love of God through one another and grow together in God's word. And so listen, if God is stirring you to uh, build up the church, be a part of what God's doing, one one of the big important roles that we have at this church is that of a small group leader, someone learning about being a small group leader, or uh, hosting a small group. So listen, if that's stirring inside of you, all we're asking is that maybe you would like to have a conversation and you can head out to any of our six connection areas at our six physical campuses and just have that conversation. If you're watching online, you can also use the chat or the comment features. You can also find more information about small groups in general at Rockbridge.CC slash groups. We're all about taking next steps and helping ourselves move forward in faith, believing the best is yet to come. And one of the places where God meets us with grace is in community with other believers. So, small groups at Rockbridge, big deal. Hope we can take steps. Hope the Spirit of the Lord is stirring and moving some people to uh, consider leading and hosting small groups. All right, we are continuing to navigate forward through our Crown series. We are in 1 Samuel going verse by verse through this incredible book of the Bible, praying that God meets us where we are in our lives as we intersect this incredible story and narrative of what God did in the history of his people when they asked him for a king uh, and, and he gave them. Saul, and now we're in this transition between, from Saul to David, and we've uh, covered a lot of ground. This week, we're going to cover something that's really profound. It doesn't really sound like a holiday message, but it really is, as we come out of Thanksgiving and look toward the Christmas season, and we're going to talk about a crisis. David's life, David's uh, journey it now b- goes into full-fledged crisis mode as he has to become a fugitive from Saul, as Saul wants to take his life. And listen, it can be hard in the holiday season just to talk about it because all of us in a crisis, coming out of a crisis or headed to a crisis, it's kind of the way things are. But here's the unique thing, right? Christmas came from a crisis. Our sin created a crisis. So Christmas is part of God's solution for that crisis of sin, And Christmas itself occurred in a crisis, right? The census and then the threat of Herod and all of those things. And and then we have to know how to crisis. That's crazy, right? We have to know how to crisis, which is going to involve us knowing God in a peculiar, a unique, a special kind of way. I mean, we might know God and, and what we've given him thanks for over the past week. We might know God, you know, maybe he saved us from our sins. We might know about God, but crisis in general invites us to know God in a very, very peculiar way in which we're going to see, a way in which we're going to see as we navigate and journey forward in the life of <coughs> David. Now, in our crisis, our beliefs are going to be challenged. Our assumptions are going to be challenged. They're going to be attacked, and and sometimes they're going to be altered for better or for worse, right? For better or for worse. We can land in some pretty dark places in a crisis. We can also land, as we'll see today, in some amazing places of grace and mercy from God. But our beliefs about God, about ourselves, are going to to be changed or altered or challenged in a crisis. Prayer, because we're going to think prayer doesn't work in a crisis and about life as we know it, all of that is just going to be attacked and maybe altered for better or for worse. Now, here's what we need to know going into a crisis or what we need to understand about a crisis. In a crisis, our enemy and even our flesh and our ego wants to put question marks where God has put periods. And if we just know that right there on the front end and understand it, it'll set us up for a good landing. It'll set us up for what God wants to do in and through a crisis. And that peculiar way of knowing and that special way of knowing God that can sometimes can only come about through a crisis, we can receive that grace. We can receive that blessing. But remember. Satan loves to put questions where God has put periods. It starts early in the, in the story of the Bible, Genesis 3, 3. The enemy said, did God really say, question mark? Did God really say, question mark? Your flesh might say, how could something like this happen to me? Your flesh might say, God, why are you doing this to me? Satan might say, God can't bless people like you don't you really understand that, right? So we'd love to put questions where God has put periods. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. You can turn them on. You can open them up. You can certainly follow along with me on the screen. 1 Samuel chapter 19, full-fledged crisis mode in the life of our emerging leader, David. Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. David had been brought into his service after uh, killing Goliath. (coughs) He he leads Saul's armies. He plays his lyre for him when he's feeling distressed. Now he wants to kill him. But Saul's son, Jonathan, they have got a special relationship. They're tight friends. He liked David very much, so he told him, My father Saul intends to kill you. Be on your guard in the morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, Talk to him about you, and when I see what he says, I'll tell you. So even though the king, the most powerful person in this region, right, has intents to kill David, David's friend Jonathan's going to help him out. And so early on in the introduction of this crisis that's emerging in David's story, we're going to see this, that God knows how to keep his promises to his people. He made a promise to David, you will be the king. God knows how to keep his promises. And let me say it in another way, nothing can keep God from keeping us. If we are in God's hand, if we are in God's will, if we are in Christ by faith, nothing can keep God from keeping us. Now, where Satan and the enemy and your flesh and your own understanding and my own understanding wants to put questions is right here, God, how are you going to do that? How, God, are you going to bring me through this? How, God, something good is going to come from this? How, God, and then how becomes where are you, God? When are you, God? Because Satan loves to put question marks where God has put periods. So Jonathan goes to his father Saul. He speaks well of David. He said to him, the king should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine, Goliath, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced, so why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? This is Jonathan speaking truth to power, which is one of the prophetic roles of the people of God. We have to speak truth to power, even when power can exert and cause a a consequence for us. He speaks truth to his dad. And Jonathan, Saul listened to Jonathan's advice, and he swears an oath. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So the story continues. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he served him as he did before. When war broke out again, David goes out, went out and fought Against the Philistines, because he's one of Saul's top military commanders, leaders. He defeated them with such great force that they fled from him. So even though we have this threat that's emerging, it's not going to go away, against David, we see David doing something profound. We saw it last week, we see it this week. He continues to serve the king, even though the king is his enemy. So let me me say this, in a crisis there is one question we should definitely ask. We said we know Satan loves to put questions where God puts periods, but there is a question we should ask, okay? And here's the question, am I doing the right things? Am I being faithful to what God has asked of me in this position, in this moment, in this situation? Am I doing the right things? See, there's a question that, tends to crowd out this question, and it's the question of, hey, how are things going? Right? And, and, and that question, how are things going, it automatically puts the scoreboard or, or gives us the wrong scoreboard. It's like, man, how's your situation? How's, the, how's your circumstances? As if, if the circumstances are good, we're good. If the situation is bad, we're not good, right? And, and it causes us to look at the wrong thing. The, the question is really, let me look myself in the mirror and say, am I doing the right things? Am I being faithful? Some of you know the story of Jim Elliott. He's a, a, a missionary who went to the shores of Ecuador to reach an unreached people group in the mid-1950s. Not long after he and his fellow missionary partners landed on the beach, they are killed by the very people they were trying to share the gospel with. His wife, Elizabeth, widow, later goes back to the same tribe, the same people that killed her husband, shares the gospel with them, and they become Christ followers. She did end up remarrying, and her second husband died of cancer shortly after they had gotten married. And she lived by a motto, a three-phrase motto, that illustrates what it looks like to be faithful, to do the right things. In a crisis, here was her motto. Trust God, obey him, do the next thing. Trust God, obey him, and do the next right thing. Those three statements line us up to be faithful. David, Saul wants to kill you. David, no, 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 I think Saul's good now. How are things going now, David? What's the next right thing, David? I'm going to trust God. He brought me from the pasture into the palace. I'm going to obey him. His king right now is Saul. His authority often is it goes through Saul. So I'm going to obey God. I'm going to serve the king. I'm going to fight in the king's armies. I'm going to play my use my musical talent to serve And I'm going to do the next right thing. Well, just because you do the right thing does not mean good things are going to happen. Verse 9, chapter 19. An evil spirit, probably better translated a distressing spirit, sent from the Lord, came on Saul as he was sitting in his palace holding his spear. We've already discussed this numerous times. This is a spirit, a distressing spirit and it's God judging David uh, judging excuse me Saul giving Saul over to his hard-heartedness. David was playing the liar and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. As the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul, ran away and escaped that night. This has happened multiple times before, but this time it has crossed the threshold. This time David has to now go and become a fugitive. There's no turning back. There's no turning back because Saul grabs like his secret commandos, his agents, and he sends them to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. But his wife, Michael, warned David. So Saul's daughter, Michael, warns David, if you don't escape tonight, you will be dead tomorrow. And then what happens next is David begins a 10 to 20 year life on the run, a 10 to 20 year life crisis okay here's what happens next in the story David is protected with from from Saul's agents but she uses deception she puts up dresses up something to look like David's in bed and and they leave the house so David gets away he runs to Samuel at Ramah talks to Samuel (coughs) and then Saul sends three groups of commandos to uh to try try to get David and they all come under the influence of the Holy Spirit as they're going to kill David and Saul gets this report and finally Saul himself goes to Ramah because he's going to get David. And he falls under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And that's chapter 19. And what does it illustrate? God knows how to keep his promises to his people and nothing can keep God from keeping us. He will fulfill his promises. How he does that is sometimes mysterious, sometimes it's providential, sometimes it's outright supernatural, but God knows how to keep his promises to his people and God knows uh, nothing can keep God from keeping us. Now what's interesting is we get all the circumstances, we get all the situational stuff, all the military stuff, all the drama. It's like a spy movie coupled with a soap opera, right? But we don't see a lot in David's heart. We don't understand his mindset. We get a glimpse of it as we turn to chapter 20, verse 1, where it says this, David fled from Nioeth and Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked. And here's some of the questions he's asking. Remember, Satan loves to put questions where God has put periods. What have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? Why is this happening to me? What is going on? Where is justice? Where is right? I mean, he's asking all those questions, right? Now, thankfully, David wrote a psalm, and it's Psalm 59. And and he writes this psalm as those agents of Saul are coming to his house to try to kidnap, kill, murder him uh, in the morning. We saw Saul give that order, and then his wife, Michael, helped him escape it. Uh, and then he writes a psalm, and this psalm is so beautiful, Psalm 59. And in this psalm, we learn how to crisis. We learn a peculiar way that we all need to know God in order to walk through the valleys that life brings our way. Psalm 59. Rescue me from my enemies, my God. Protect me From those who rise up against me, rescue me from evildoers, save me from men of bloodshed. They're outside lurking in the town. Because look, Lord, they sent sent an ambush for me. Powerful men of Saul attacked me, but not because of any sin or rebellion of mine. And this shows us how we need to learn an aspect of God that we need to know of. And then we need to know how to do this with God. Right, here it is. We must know God as a refuge. And we must know how to refuge in God. Now, a refuge is like a shelter in the storm. It doesn't make the storm go go away, but it does protect us while we're in it. Where do we want to be when a storm comes? In a safe shelter, in a stronghold. So, refuging in God and knowing God as refuge is a powerful and important part of our relationship with God. Now, now, here's the crazy thing. No one looks at God and says, God, we don't want the circumstances that require us to know God in this peculiar way. But we need to know God in this peculiar way because of life and because of sin and because of distresses and disappointments. So none of us are saying, hey, God, I want to know you as refuge, unless we're in a storm. But it's in those storms that we get the opportunity to know God as a stronghold and as a refuge. Now, this crisis that we experience, the crisis that David experiences, and the crisis that you and I experience occur on two levels. The first level is our situation, what we find ourselves in. We can call that a valley. 1 Samuel 19 is the situation. It describes it doesn't tell us this other level. That's Psalm 59. The other place where we experience a crisis is in our soul. The most important part about us is our soul. The most important question we can really ask ourselves is, how's your soul? And and, and what we're we're taught to believe is this. If the situation is bad, I'm not bad. I'm not good either. If the situation isn't well, I'm not well either. But what we're going to see in Psalm 59 is that David's situation is like a 10 to 20 year valley, even though it focuses in on one particular night of when he's just going into this fugitive status. What we're seeing though emerge in Psalm 59 is even though our situation, hey, how's it going, David? It's not good. But his soul doesn't have to be not good. When you know how to refuge in God, your situation can be not good, but your soul can be good. And that's what we're going to see. Verse 4, Psalm 59. For no fault of mine, they run up and take up a position. This is the ambush position. Awake to help me. He kind of thinks like God's asleep. He'll, he'll come out of that, you know, this Psalm 59, like all prayer, like all true prayer, we're changed as we pray. Sometimes prayer doesn't change things, it changes us. And then maybe we go out and change things in the name of the Lord. So initially, he's sort of like, God, you're asleep. In fact, what's crazy is David is in this situation Because it's God working to promote him from the pasture to the palace and eventually to wear the crown. So he says, God, wake up. I kind of feel like you're sleeping on the job. I've been there. You've been there. Many of you are are there. So he says, Awake to help me and take notice. Hey, something bad's going on, God, in case you didn't know. But then he says, Lord God of armies he knows God this way, because he's been fighting Goliath, and he's been fighting the Philistines. He says, you are the God of Israel. Rise up to punish all the nations. Do not show favor to any wicked traitors than the pause word, the musical word, Selah. They return at evening, the agents sent to kill him by Saul. Snarling like dogs and prowling around the city. Look, they spew from their mouth sharp words from their lips, for who they say will hear, but you laugh at them, Lord. You ridicule all the nations. So, even though this is like one situation in one night, in one town, David sees it's connected to. Anyone who would laugh at God, ridicule God's plans, God's people, and God's purposes, and he asserts that God, while they're spewing their vicious lies, God, you're laughing because you know who's really in charge. So we see David crisising, refuging in God. Let's learn from him. Number one is this. We must declare the sovereignty of God over the valleys that we walk through. We must declare the sovereignty of God. That means God's large and in charge. Over the valleys that we walk through. Because, again, we love to put Satan in our flesh, love to put questions where God has put periods. As David is hearing these guys and knows that they're out there, the question is, God, are you here? Wake up, God, rise up. And then he says, no, God, you're laughing at them. You are sovereign over the valley that I'm currently going through. Meaning it didn't catch you by surprise. You haven't been asleep, God. And and so we need to even take that a step further because I think this is one of the, the, the most sinister lies of Satan is a valley in our life does not mean a wrong turn. A lot of times when we go through a valley, we think we've made a wrong turn. We think we've messed up. We think we're the problem. We think we've done something we shouldn't have done. David says numerous times, I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything wrong. Remember who likes to ask question marks, right? You go through a valley, Satan loves to say, this is because God's getting you. God's punishing you. This is because you messed up, or this is because of this, or this is because of that. Satan loves to say, did God really say, is God really good? Can God really love you? He loves to put questions where we should be putting, keeping periods in place. Now, that being said, there are three types of valleys. I get this from Larry Osborne. There's a God sent me here valley. David is in a God sent me here valley. All David did was get called out of the pasture, anointed to be the king, sent back to the pasture. Providence has brought him into the palace. He's been successful against Goliath and against the Philistines. Saul gets jealous, so he's in a God-sent-me-here valley. There are, I-took-a-wrong-turn valleys. I took a wrong-turn valleys, and then sometimes there's just, I just don't understand. Sometimes the wisdom of God and the will of God is hidden from us. It's beyond (coughs) my understanding. But here's the great thing. When you, you know you're in these kind of valleys, just by knowing it, you know the next step. You know the next right thing, right? If God sent me here and I'm in a valley, I persevere, I stay, I fight, I hang tough. I'm faithful. If I took a wrong turn, I repent. I turn back to God. I exercise what we might call gutsy guilt I don't run from God because I made a mistake. I don't run from God because I sinned. I run to God. I confess. I get right with God through humility, confession, and repentance, and then God's with me. If it's beyond my understanding, I have to trust God. I have to lean not on my own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all my heart. And When I do those things, God's sovereignty, God's graciousness, I'm underneath the umbrella of God's goodness and God's faithfulness and God's best for my life Spurgeon said it this way when you go through a trial the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head the Psalms continued we turn now to verse 9 of chapter of Psalm 59 I keep watch for you so I discipline myself I keep watch for you. I'm looking, God, for your hand. I'm looking, I'm searching, I'm seeking, God. Because you're my strength. God is my stronghold. Another name for refuge. My faithful God will come to meet me. God will let me look down on my adversaries. God, I'm looking for you. God, my attention's on. God, I, you've got this. So the second thing of refuge in God, the second way to crisis with God, to know God and how to refuge in God is this we must turn decisively to the person of God I'm watching for you shouldn't it say I'm watching for somebody to stab me in the back now circumstantially that may be true but in his soul remember there's two levels of a crisis the situation I'm looking behind every door but there's the soul I'm watching you, God. I'm looking for you, God. So we, dis- dis- we turn decisively to the person of God, who God is. Now, there, there's a lie from the pit of hell where people's say, I just don't feel it. I don't feel God. Came to church, didn't get anything out of it, didn't feel the presence. Didn't feel anything in the singing. Didn't get anything from the sermon. When you turn decisively to the person of God, it is an act of your will, not of your feelings. Your feelings are gauges, they're not guides. In a crisis, your feelings can lie to you. In a crisis, your feeling can be the very mechanism that the enemy and your flesh put question marks where God has put periods. So what you must do decisively is this. You must state the facts of faith and your feelings will eventually, eventually... Align with the facts of faith. So that's what David does. God, you're my stronghold. God, you're the living God. I, you're going to answer my prayers. This is not going to threaten your promises to me. God, you know how to keep your people and keep your word. You state the facts of faith, and feelings will eventually align. David is actually thankful in advance. Which is crazy, right? He thanks God in advance for his deliverance. And I thought it would be good this week, coming out of Thanksgiving, to do a Thanksgiving test. Because, you you see, first is, are we thankful for our blessings? And yet, we could say that, and we probably made a list. We probably, whoever prayed before your Thanksgiving meal probably rattled off, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight things, family, friends, safe travels, maybe health the past year. Maybe God gave you a positive, a raise. You got a roof over your head. I mean, we're, we're right to be thankful for those things. But let's press it another, to another level. Sometimes our blessings can actually become idols, Which means we're really thankful for what we have, but we're not necessarily thankful for who God is. So if we took away all of our quote-unquote blessings, and all we have is God, and all that we know of who God is, can we still be thankful? And this is what I meant at the top of the message when I talked about general thanksgiving versus peculiar thanksgiving. General thanksgiving looks the same no matter if you're a Christian or an atheist or a Buddhist. Thank you for the weather. Thank you for clothes. Thank you for the money we have, the house, the roof over our head, the food that we eat. Thank you for family. Thank you for friends. Now, As Christians, we may be connecting the dots back to the one true living God. But it's still, we're generally thankful for the same things. There's a peculiar thanksgiving where now we're thankful not so much for these tangible blessings. God, we're just thankful for who you are. We're thankful that you are faithful, that you are a stronghold, that you are a refuge, that you are a strong tower. God, we're thankful that you saw fit to enter this world at Christmas to deliver us from our sins and pay the debt we cannot pay so we could have eternal life and forever life with you. God, we're thankful for you. See, David on the run, David in Psalm 59. His situation is not good. Two levels of a crisis, the situation and the soul. His situation is not good. What blessings is he receiving? He's on the run. God, I'm thankful for my house. Oh, no, I don't have a house anymore. God, I'm thankful for my wife. Oh, no, I can't even go home to her because her dad has put secret agents in my house. So he's thankful for what? God, you're my stronghold and my refuge you see when we're looking at the person of god and we've turned decisively to him we're no longer demanding explanations from him it's not god dot dot dot, question mark it's god period The Psalms continues. He says, don't kill them. By your power, make them homeless wanderers and bring them down, Lord, our shield. Consume them in fury. Consume them until they are gone. Then people will know throughout the earth that God rules over Jacob. Throughout the earth, in my small little life, use this, God, to magnify your name. Selah. But then... He vents this out, declares this, but then he's like, hey, they return at evening snarling like dogs and prowling around the city. My enemies haven't disappeared. So what he does, this is refuging in God, number three, you bring the crisis to God in honesty. God, take them out. God, get rid of them. Oh, God, they're still here. But you bring the crisis to God and you move it into alignment with his renown. God, let's let this crisis make you known. Let's make this crisis bring you glory. Hallowed be your name. Right? So I, I was just thinking a little bit about our church, right? And, you know, we ask a lot of questions just to sort of guide our direction and our thinking. You know, what does the Bible say is one of them? Another question that, that we came up with a few years ago it's a Rockbridge vision type question. Is What will bring God the most glory? And, and it seems like David in this moment is saying, God, if there's glory you can get in and through this valley that I'm in, glory to you. Let your name be known. You know, we as a church, we, we want to keep asking what will bring God the most glory? Does, does being a church just for church people bring God the most glory? Or does being a church with a commitment to reach lost and disconnected people I mean, after all, we follow the one who told the stories of leaving the 99 to go get the one, right? There's being a non-diverse, non-ethnically, racially, financially, all you know, if we're all the same, does that bring God the most glory? No. The kingdom of heaven is diverse racially, ethnically, socioeconomically. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of people from all walks of life. Does does being a church where all my preferences get met and all my pet peeves are avoided, does that bring God the most glory? Or man, I'm I'm part of a church that asks me to sometimes surrender my preferences for the greater good and the greater glory of God's purposes. Hallowed be your name. This is us at our best. This is David at his best. His situation is not best, but his soul's looking pretty good. Then he closes with some surprising words. He says, But I will sing of your strength, and I will joyfully, joyfully proclaim your faithful love in the morning. For you have been a stronghold for me, a refuge in my day of trouble. To you, my strength, I sing praise. It's because God is my stronghold, my faithful God. And he talks about a specific habit. A specific thing that needs to be in the arsenal of every Christ follower. Singing. He sings to defy the questions and keep the periods in place. Right? I will sing of your strength, period. I will joyfully proclaim your faithful love in the morning, period. For you have been a stronghold for me, a refuge in my day of trouble, period. To you, my strength, I sing praises because God is my stronghold, my faithful God, period. See, here's the, here's the great thing. Now listen, I, I, I'm the guy whose wife said when we were dating, Matt, you can't sing. We, she tried to teach me. She said either I teach you how to sing or we keep dating, right? But singing is a, both a response to grace and a means of grace. There are things God does in our soul through song that he doesn't do through other ways, right? Other means of grace, right? Singing is an ambush and an attack on our enemies. It's part of our toolbox, our weaponry in spiritual warfare, Because we're defiantly putting periods where the enemy in our flesh wants to put question marks. It's why we need to understand the value of corporate singing. In fact, it says, when we are filled with the Spirit, it overflows in song, right? (coughs) So when we're all together, the value of being in church every week, singing... It weakens our self-consciousness because we're not really, it's not there just for someone's performance. It's really there. We're all together, voices in unison. We can't, you know, I, I can't, if I hear myself sing, I get very, very self-conscious. If I'm hearing myself sing amidst all the other people, man, I get smaller so, and I get less of me so God can put more of himself in me. Singing helps unify our attention on God and it stirs affections for God. It's amazing. Right? I remember when Beth had leukemia and I was commuting back and forth from uh, Rockbridge to New York City. And I flew home one Thursday, one Thursday night to preach Rockbridge PM service. And I was getting ready to you know, go fly back up and we were singing. And I still remember the song. I could still take you to the section of the worship venue I was at. And, and the song was Our God. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher. Our God. Not, I mean, best diet, we didn't know which way best illness would go, but my soul was better because God met me as I sang and singing helped ambush and attack the questions that were threatening my soul. Some of you, I know some of you like country music. There's a song by... Uh, by Eric Church called Springsteen. And he's recalling hearing Bruce Springsteen's song in his childhood. And there's a line that goes like this. He says, look, it says, It's funny how a melody sounds like a memory. It's funny how a melody sounds like a memory. You know, when we're singing to God and about God, it has a way of reminding us of who God is. Even though the storm's outside, we're safe. We're refuging in Him. Now, before we close and sing together, it's going to be a little different. We're going to sing a little bit longer after the message than before. So I just invite you to stay and and, and attack and ambush your enemy and allow God's grace to hit your soul Samuel 1 Samuel 19 ends awkwardly. This crazy, hard-hearted king, he goes to Ramah. I kind of alluded to this. The Spirit of God came on him, and as he walked along, he prophesied. And Saul then removed his clothes and prophesied before the priest, the prophet Samuel. He collapsed and lay naked all that day and all that night. He's been kind of humiliated, overcome by the power of God. And that is why they say, is Saul also among the prophets? And there's a, there's, a, there's a truth and a warning and an invitation all wrapped up into this ending of chapter 19, the beginning, which is the beginning of David's 10 to 20 year crisis. And, and here, here's the truth, here's the warning, and here's the invitation. A person can be affected by the presence of God but not surrendered to the presence of God. Surrender to the presence of God will always result in a changed life marked by joy, power, hope, and Christ like character. So, as I pray and as we begin to sing, we're going to all sing together an incredible, incredible song called It Is Well with My Soul. May not be well out there, but it can be well in here when we are surrendered to the presence of Almighty God, our refuge and our stronghold, our faithful God. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and pray. Almighty God, we need you now. So God, at the level of our souls, I pray you would find us surrendered to you. I pray, God, at the level of our soul, you would satisfy us with your presence. I pray, God, we could defy the questions and put periods because of who you are. As we sing to you and sing of you, it is well, it is well with my soul. God, be glorified by the praises of your people. But God, bring grace to the souls of your people as we sing to you now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.